1 John 2, 18-27. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but the going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is a man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as he has taught you, remain in him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we are looking at uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses uh, 18 through 27 this morning. And uh, I just want to start off by telling you that I have been in full-time ministry now since about 2004. For some of you, that doesn't seem like a very long time. Uh, but for me, that is a long time. It's about 15 years or so. And some of those years have been easier than others. goes without saying, right? Some of those years have, have been quite hard. In fact, you may not know this, but I took a sabbatical, a three-month break, uh, starting in May of this year. And I can tell you that the two years leading up to that break were by far the most difficult years of my ministry. During that time, there were moments when I was just, I was extremely discouraged. I felt like not only was ministry difficult, not only was the ministry feeling like it was falling apart in some ways, but the pressures of that ministry seemed that it was making my, my home fall apart. And maybe you've been in a place like that before. Maybe you've been in one of those moments where you wake up with a pit in your stomach. You know what I'm talking about? You wake up and you worry about what that next piece of bad news is going to be, if it's going to come, and, and then it usually does. And it was during that time in my life that I started speaking with an older pastor, a retired pastor who uh, was giving me some encouragement, listening to me, and after I spoke to him for a while, kind of vented and poured out my heart, he asked me a question, a diagnostic question, a question that I still come back to quite often. I, I might have asked it to some of you before because I think it's really helpful. He, he listened to what I had to say, and then he said, tell me about your spiritual life right now. If you thought about your spiritual life as a, a ship at sea, how would you characterize it? Are you sailing right now? Is the spirit at your back? Are the sails full of wind? Even in the midst of this hardship, can you feel his presence with you? 
Or are you rowing? Are you working hard? Are you believing the promises? Are you pursuing God, even if he feels like he might be far away? Or are you drifting? Are you starting to neglect your soul because things are busy? Because there's a lot of stress? Because there are a lot of things taking your attention? Have you neglected those parts of yourself? Or finally, he said, or are you sinking? Have you given up? Are you in despair? How would you answer that question this morning? I like that question because it naturally, hopefully, leads us to another question, which is, how do we get back to sailing again? What will it take for me to dwell in the presence of God, to experience the full blessing of his abundant life? And that's what this passage is about this morning. It's about the answer to that question. This passage is both a warning and it's an encouragement. It's a warning because it is telling us about the dangers that we face in this world. John is telling us about the things that can knock us off course, the things that can lead us astray, the things that can leave us feeling distant and dry and detached and far from God. But it's also an encouragement. It's an encouragement that the path to that robust, to that vital, to that joy-filled life in Christ is possible. And it's not nearly as complicated as we tend to make it seem. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to study this passage by breaking it down into three topics. The dangerous lie, the powerful ally, and the appropriate response. So let's start off talking about this dangerous lie. Now, John has a unique way of writing. He's not like some of the other biblical authors where there's a very clear, logical progression of thought where he makes one point and builds off of that point that leads to the next point that leads to the next point. Instead, John, he has some main ideas that he wants to communicate. And he expresses those ideas, and then he circles back to them. And then he reiterates them, and he comes at a different angle, and he adds detail every time, and he goes back and forth. And this passage is a great example of that. He does that a lot right here. Every idea that he wants to, to give us today is summarized in the last two verses. He says, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. So those are the three points. He says, there's the lie. There's these people who are leading you astray. There's the ally, this anointing from the spirit that you've received. And there's the response, that you should remain in him. But then we go back, we go back up through the passage and we learn the details of these things. We learn more about these liars that John is referring to. In verse 18 he says, this is the last hour. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, 
they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Then verse 22, he says, who is the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So he tells us these people, there are some characteristics that describe them. They used to be a part of the church, but they are no longer a part of the church. At some point, they left. And they deny that Jesus is the Christ. But not only do they deny it, they're trying to convince other people of that same fact. They're trying to lead people astray and bring them along with them. And I'm sure you probably noticed when I read it, he calls these people antichrists. He means that literally, okay? They are anti-Christ. These are people who are against Christ. I know that's a word that sometimes comes up in, I don't know what you would call it, like Christian pop culture, right? It's a word that we hear about sometimes. Um, people write all kinds of books trying to figure out who the antichrist is. There's these great conspiracy theories. Usually it's around whoever's president at the time or whatever world's, whatever war the world is caught up in. Don't get distracted by that stuff. That's not what John has in mind right here. John's not talking about any one particular person when he's using that word. Here, he says there are many antichrists who have come. And the antichrists, they are simply people who deny Jesus is the Christ. So hopefully we all know, right, that Christ isn't Jesus' last name, right? It's a title. It's, it's a, it comes from Messiah. It means the anointed one. Christ means that Jesus is the promised king. The one who God told us was going to come and was going to bring in his kingdom of peace. And he did that through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And so if people deny that Jesus is the Christ, they're denying that Jesus is God. They're denying that Jesus is who he said he was. And even though this letter and this group of people that John is writing about, even though they're thousands of years old, even though they seem long lost to history, in every age, these people pop up. In every time, this same lie crops up again. Let's just talk about this church, as a matter of fact. Let's talk about the Boylston Church. This church was founded in 1869 as a Sunday school. And then about 10 years later, they finally got organized into a formal church. And a few weeks ago, I found some old historical documents around here. I, I read about the history, and I found out that during that time, there were quite a few other gospel-preaching churches around. And those churches helped that Sunday school. They came and they offered preaching. They came and they helped find a pastor. And then once the pastor was here, they, they helped to get that pastor installed. And I'm sure they continued to help him out as he continued his ministry. But do you know where those churches are now? They're gone. 
or they have left the faith entirely. And it's because of this. This exact heresy that John's talking about. They slowly left behind the doctrine of Christ. First, they said things like, you know, these gospels, the things in here, they're wise. They're useful. But, you know, some of this stuff seems outdated. Some of this stuff makes me feel bad. Do we really need to take everything Jesus said so seriously? And then they said, and come to think of it, you know, I don't really like this idea that Jesus had to die to satisfy the wrath of God. That, I don't know if I like that idea. What I'd rather think about is maybe Jesus is just a good example for us. Showing us what it means to live a sacrificial life. And once the word of God fell, once the atonement of Christ fell, finally they said, you know, Jesus was a good teacher. But there have been a lot of good teachers. Maybe we should consider them all. And in case you think I'm making this stuff up, uh, this is a true story. When I first moved to Boston when I was in seminary, I went and met with one of the pastors working at a church that helped start this church. A church that has kind of left some of this core doctrine behind. I'd read one of his sermons. One of these churches is kind of a tourist attraction now. And I was just so baffled by the content that I was like, would you be willing to meet with me and, and just have a conversation? And he agreed. I was probably a little bit arrogant as a young seminary student to try to meet with a, an older pastor and criticize his sermon. But I sat with him and I said, you know, as we talked for a while, I asked him point blank. Do you believe that Jesus is God? He thought about it for a second. And he said, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course I believe Jesus is God. But God has many forms. Like Buddha. And Gandhi. And Martin Luther King Jr. Guys, you can laugh. That's pretty ridiculous. I think, I think Martin Luther King would have a little bit of trouble with somebody claiming that he was God himself. I don't think that was a part of his theology. It seems insane, right, that somebody would believe that. But as absurd as some of these ideas are, people get persuaded by this. People get pulled in by this kind of thinking because false teachers, without exception, they present themselves as experts. They are trying to lead others and lead others astray. And they'll talk about new ways that they've discovered to read these ancient texts. Newly discovered meanings, hidden meanings behind the Greek or Hebrew. Whatever it is. And as bizarre as some of the conclusions might come out to seem, there will always be people who are persuaded by this. Because the truth is, as sinners, we are always looking for permission to ignore God's commands. We're always looking for a way to get out of it. It's much easier to conform to the world than it is to follow Christ, the Son of God. It's easier to give up these countercultural ideas and just fit in with the crowd. But it's a dangerous lie. 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, if the gospel is not true, if Jesus is not the Christ, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still dead in your sins. That's what's at stake. It's a dangerous lie. But there's good news in here. The good news is this. John tells us that in the midst of this, we have a powerful ally. In the fight against these lies, we are not alone. Verse 20, he says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know the truth. And because no lie comes from the truth. He says, As for the anointing you received from him, it remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. That anointing is real. It's not counterfeit. Now, I think that is a great argument. And I I love a great argument. Now, I... I don't love being in arguments, but I like to watch arguments. I love to observe great arguments. Have any of you guys been watching uh, any of these democratic debates? No. Yeah, me neither. I haven't either. <laughs> I, I've been, mostly I, I listen to the, the news the next day. I hear the clips, the highlights of these four-hour things. But uh, I, was, I was amused, at least, by the most recent one. There was this interaction between uh, one of the candidates and, and criticizing another candidate who didn't have a whole lot of experience in Washington, D.C. And, and I love these moments when it seems like one politician is on, on, the, you know, be, on the offense, is about to go in for the kill, and then somebody comes back with this great response that just shuts them down. And so this person was criticizing the other for not having been in Washington very long at all. And the other candidate said, it's true. I haven't been in Washington very long, but on this stage with me, we have over 100 years of collective experience in Washington, and look where it's gotten us. Like, oh, that's tough. John's argument in this passage, I think he shuts down his opponents in a much more definitive way. And we need to pay attention. We need to pay attention to the way he argues here. See, in the world, we're always going to have these people who are telling us New ideas about God. These, quote, new ideas. And sometimes they're going to do it with great, huge theological libraries behind them. Sometimes they're going to do it with little magazines that they're handing you at the tea stop. Sometimes they're just going to argue popular opinion. But they always claim some brilliant argument for why the Bible doesn't really say what it says. And John, the way he argues with them, instead of jumping into the weeds, instead of getting down and telling us every point and how we need to refute it, he says this. You have the Holy Spirit. You don't need me to argue down these points. You don't need someone to teach you that Jesus is the Christ the Savior of the world, because you know it. Period. His Spirit 
dwells in you. When you repented of your sin, when you turned to Jesus as your Savior, you received an anointing of his Spirit, and you still have it. People can argue all day that water isn't wet, but if you've got a cup of it in your hand, it doesn't matter what they say, right? Now, let me be clear here. When when John says you don't need a teacher, he's not saying that Christians should turn off their brains, okay? He's not saying that whenever we hear some kind of contrary argument, we should plug, plug our ears or bury our heads. He's not saying that we need to be anti-intellectual in the church. And history proves that. There's a great legacy, a great tradition of brilliant Christian scholarship that continues up to this day. Even in this room, we have quite a few intelligent people who come to worship here every week. He's not saying switch off your brains. Nor is he saying that Christians have nothing to learn about their faith. When he says you don't need a teacher, he doesn't mean we're all instantly made experts in theology. We all instantly know everything we're supposed to know. We do need teachers. And we need to study and we need to learn more about our faith. But what he is saying here is that if Jesus has saved you from your sins, if his spirit dwells in you, It's pointless for somebody to try and tell you he didn't do that. The glorious reality of the Christian faith is that our Jesus is alive. He hasn't left us as orphans, right? He's still at work. His spirit dwells in us right now at this moment. If we are in Christ, we cannot escape the daily reality of our God. The Spirit is constantly working. He's constantly moving in us. And what's he doing? How's he doing that? Well, two ways. The Holy Spirit, Scripture tells us, is at work in our lives every day, convicting us of our sin. Jesus says, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness, and judgment. So if you're convicted of your sin, the Spirit is working in your life. And the second thing the Spirit does is He convinces us of God's grace. Paul says, because you are sons and daughters, God sent His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, the Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. He shows us our sin, and He shows us that we can come to God as His children. And so, while we're always going to need to be on guard against these lies, John's telling us you have a powerful ally to fight against these lies, to fight against these liars. You have a real and a true relationship with God who's filled us with the Spirit. And that brings us to the main point. The main point that John's making, that Jesus makes. See, these antichrists, They are bringing a, what you'd call a theological argument. They're bringing a doctrinal argument. Back then and and today as well. They brought a whole new list of facts. And they want to debate. 
But John, he says, don't debate. He doesn't give you a reading list or an instruction manual of things you should start doing to prepare against these attacks. He doesn't tell us what to do at all. Did you notice that? Here's what he says. He says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Now the NIV, the text that you have in front of you, actually translates that word remain. So you've probably heard it that way so far. It's the same word. It's this Greek word minnow. And I think... uh, I prefer the translation abide because it makes more sense to me. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John 15 when he says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And that's the core of John's message to us. He's saying that in the midst of this fight, As we are constantly doing battle in this world, as there are forces in this world that are constantly trying to persuade us and pull us away from our faith in Christ, we want to do something. We want to act. But he says we should not focus on what we're doing, but we should focus on our being. Abide in him. And let what you heard from the beginning Abide in you. If you leave this room this morning and you only hear one thing I say, let it be that. Abide in him. The greatest, most powerful response when our faith is weak, when we are under attack, is to abide in him. It's to abide in him. Say that with me. Abide in Him. Evangelicalism. That's what this is called. Protestant, the Protestant evangelicals. We, we're the people who share the gospel. But you know, evangelicalism, it often becomes a religion of doers. Doesn't it? We want to grow. We want to get close to Jesus. And so we're always looking for the next steps. We want to know how to make progress. And so we're always looking for that next great pastor whose sermons we can download and listen to, whose tapes we can order. We're looking for that inspirational book that we can read and it'll tell us the secrets or the cause to support or the discipleship program to follow. We want to do something. But John says if you want to make progress... Don't do. Be. Abide. The path to a firm foundation is not busying yourself with doing for God, but it is slowing down your life to be with God. It's not to go out and build some great new plan of attack. But it's to simply take that truth you have already heard 
that ancient and simple truth that you already know and let it sink into your bones. To abide in Him and let His truth abide in you. And I just, I, I want to say this as many times as I can because this, this is something we need to hear. Abiding in, in God, it's, it doesn't come easy for us. Doing is much easier. It's easier to read a book or set up a ministry or serve the church. But it is hard to sit silently in the presence of God. It's hard to not just read the Bible, to check off the box, to say that you've done it that day, and instead to sit and drink deeply and wait patiently for the Spirit to bring it alive in your soul. And so that brings us back to the question I was asking a few moments ago. For those of you who would say right now you're drifting, for those of you who would say right now you're sinking, for those of you who are just finding the basic truth of the gospel hard to believe, I want to ask, how is your being with Jesus? How are you abiding in Him? Are you taking time to do this? Are you taking time to sit in His presence? To share your heart with Him? To remember His promises for you? You know, this week, as I was writing the sermon, um, just before I sat down to, to finish it up, I got into this really difficult conversation with somebody in my life. And it just threw me for a loop. I'm sure you've had these moments in your own life, but I was just a mess after that phone call. I was, I was anxious, I was angry, I was frazzled, and here I am, and I'm sitting down trying to write this sermon for you all. I felt the pressure in the moment. I felt the pressure to get it done because I got kids, I got school pickups, I got all these other responsibilities in my life, and I realized in that moment that my doing for God was threatening to outpace my being with God in that moment. And thankfully, I saw that. Thankfully, I realized that there was really going to be no way that I could give anything to you guys today unless I stopped to receive from Him. So, instead of doing, even though it was hard, even though I had time limitations and things that seemed more important, I pulled out my Bible and I opened it up to where I just happened to be, which was John chapter 14, verse 1. It says, Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, look, I'm a, I'm a professional Christian. I know that verse. <laughs> I've heard that verse a lot of times. I, in fact, had already read that verse that week. But as I sat there and took a deep breath, and read it. The Spirit moved. I was once, again, I was reminded that, that these aren't just words in a book. But these are Christ's words for me. And for you. They're alive. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. As that sank into my heart, my sanity returned. I started to feel what I was about to preach about. What it means to abide. I remembered that God, he's already guaranteed my future. I'm going to be with him. In fact, I, I, I am with him right now. For us in Christ, our eternal life, it's already started. What can man do to me? What do I have to be worried about? What about you? What would it mean for you to abide this morning? What would it mean for you to take what John says seriously today? That you need to abide. That you need to find some time this week to slow down and become aware that God is at work in your life. To stop thinking of yourself as a human doing and become a human being. God wants to do that for you. God wants to speak his promises to you firsthand. He wants to fill your sails with the wind of his spirit. We are in a dangerous world. We are surrounded by lies. We are in a world that would try to pull us away from our Savior. But you know what? We have his spirit and we can abide in him. And so that's my invitation this morning. Whatever challenge you're facing, whatever difficulty is, is coming in your life this week, remember that you have a powerful ally. That promise is not fake. That is real. It's not counterfeit. The Spirit is living. That God dwells. God dwells in His people. And I want to invite you to abide in Him. To respond by abiding in Him. To slow down right now. Right now where you're sitting. Take a deep breath. And let that truth you have heard hit your bones. Let Jesus speak to you today. Not me. Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in me. Jesus says, I have redeemed you by my blood. I have given you my spirit. I have adopted you as my child. Jesus says to you today, I love you. And I desire for you to know my love. No more sinking. No more drifting. Only abiding.